Our scripture reading today comes from Ecclesiastes 2, verses 17 to 23. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning, and uh, welcome to Leva Campus. I'm Tom. Uh, we're really glad you're here on this Mother's Day. So, actor Jim Carrey is known for his dumb and dumber foolish humor, isn't he? But it was his insightful acceptance speech at a Golden Globe Award ceremony that took me by surprise. Watch. <clears throat> Listen to his words. I dream about being a three-time Golden Globe Award winner, right? Then I would be enough. It would finally be true. I could stop this terrible search for what I know will not ultimately fulfill me. So what is Jim Carrey saying? He's saying our work, our achievements, our successes, no matter how small or large or great, how visible or invisible, offer much, much more than they ever can deliver. Yet it seems as a culture, doesn't it, that we are very tone-deaf to his message. Derek Thompson, in the Atlantic article not too long ago, it was entitled brilliantly, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. And Derek points out that work has now morphed in our culture into a religious identity, promising us transcendence and community, but failing to deliver. He points to a pure research poll 
that focused on youth anxiety, and this is how he summarizes it. Finding meaning at work beats family and kindness as the top ambition of today's young people. So no matter our age, y'all, we all long to know that we are somehow enough, that we really matter. We are, in the words of the brilliant Viktor Frankl, we are meaning-seeking creatures from cradle to grave. And one of the main ways we seek meaning is our work. Somehow we convince ourselves we believe that if we work enough, if we somehow achieve enough, if we have success enough, then we will find the meaning our hearts so insatiably crave. But will our impassioned pursuit of meaning in our work deliver what we so deeply long for? This is the question the ancient writer of Ecclesiastes raises. And we may be very surprised at his answer. I'd like you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Now, as a church family, we are in this series, we're exploring this Old Testament book, this wisdom literature book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've been with us, you know that the writer of Ecclesiastes offers us wisdom from the teacher. And the Hebrew idea is the koheleth. Ecclesiastes, throughout the entire journey, presents two contrasting frameworks of life, or philosophies of life. One is a life under the sun. We've said that is one that is absent of God. It is a secular view of human existence. And the other view he presents is what we may call life over the sun, which is a sacred view of a Godward-focused life. Now, last week at this campus, Pastor Andrew explored with us the first part of chapter 2 where the teacher, Koheleth, describes the mad pursuit of pleasure. And he tells us that pleasure failed him. Pleasure proved to be another despairing mirage of meaning. So the question next in his mind is, what about work? Maybe that would be different. But as we will see in our text this morning, in the second part of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, work will fail him too. Now, in verses 17 to 23, we find Koheleth giving us three compelling reasons why pursuing work to find ultimate meaning is such a dead-end street. The first reason we see is that our work will let us down. Now, if you notice in the context, after describing the disillusioning letdown of intellectual pursuits, Koheleth, the teacher, now points to the pursuit of his own work in verse 17. And he says, so I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. Simply chasing after the wind. Now this is truly amazing and stunning when we consider what Koheleth, the teacher, has just described earlier in chapter 2. All the amazing works he did, his massive achievements that were known around the world as one of the wonders of the ancient world. In other words, most likely this is Solomon, that's how I think, but he climbed to the top of the ladder of the world and he finds his ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. It is pointless. Now let's recall, if we've been a part of the series, that in the opening verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 
There is this repetition of this word, meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Which, as we said, translates from a Hebrew word, havel. Havel, havel, havel. It continues throughout the entire book. Everything is havel. And notice right after Ecclesiastes begins in the opening two verses, right at verse 3, he goes to toil, to work. What does a person gain from all their toil, which they toil under the sun? So here now in chapter 2, he picks up on this theme. Koaleth presses into how all of us pursue meaning in our work, but that lets us down too. Now, it's also important as thoughtful readers and listeners of the text to understand another Hebrew word that is very visible throughout Ecclesiastes, and it's compacted here. It is the Hebrew word that is translated toil, and it's even stronger in the Hebrew language. It's amal. And it describes the visceral frustration, the trouble, the suffering that comes embedded in our work, no matter what the work is. Now, this word is very important because it appears often. And here, in chapter 2, it is compacted. Let me give you an idea. In Ecclesiastes, this word appears at least 22 times. Nine times, that's almost half, are compacted in these few verses. So you get the emphasis of what he's saying. What is he doing with this? Now remember, as we've said in this series so far, that the shadows of Eden, the Garden of Eden, are always in the nearby background of Ecclesiastes. So in a very real sense, Colette, the teacher, is describing this deep, visceral groaning of what life for all creation is like now outside the Garden of Eden. Now let's remember, the Garden of Eden means luxury or delight. But now, we understand outside the garden, our experience is frustration and despair. And this will be all through the book. So if we do a quick flashback with me to the first three chapters of Genesis, let me give a sense of what is going on here. Let's remember that in Genesis, in original creation, we were made as human beings uniquely in the image of God. And we were created with work in mind. We were to be co-creators and co-takers co-caretakers, sorry, with God in the garden. Humans were placed in the Garden of Eden, this garden of delight, to fundamentally enjoy God's presence and to do good God-glorifying work. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when sin and death entered the garden, there were massive consequences of disintegration. One of the consequences of this disintegration was human work was now toil. And not only was work toilsome and frustration, we need to see that work morphed into idolatry. In other words, instead of work being a vital aspect of our worship of God, now humans worship their work instead of God. That's the big piece here. The work of their hands they worship became ultimate to them. And again, that continues today in a profound way. One of the greatest cultural idols of our times, often hidden and often seducing, is the cultural idol of workaholism or workism, as Derek Thompson emphasizes. And idols in whatever form will inevitably let us down. They also are deceptive in their nature. And this is evidence in our understanding, in our culture today, of work. So in English, we think of work often, don't we, as something we do to get paid for. We say things like, when did you go back to work? Or, what company do you work for? 
Now, let me say clearly, when getting paid for our work is a good thing, right? But biblically, our work is much more than what we get paid for. Work as God designed it is about human contribution, not primarily economic compensation. From cradle to grave, we were created to work. That is to contribute to the world, to honor God in all that we do, and to love our neighbor in and through our work. But whether our work is paid or unpaid, our work is now toilsome. Whether that work involves changing a company or changing our child's diapers, our work now is not what it was designed to be, not what it ought to be. In other words, the reason we feel so deeply the meaninglessness of our work, like Koaleth here, is precisely because we were made for meaningful work. The reason we often feel the fruitfulness of our striving and work is because we were designed to be fruitful. The reason we feel the daily pain and frustration of our work is because we have a deep God-given impulse to purposefully create, cultivate, and contribute to human flourishing. So like so many mirages of meaning we chase, and there are many of them, our work, paid or non-paid, will eventually let us down. This is what the teacher is saying. This is our life now outside the garden. So Kohlath wants us to understand right away in this text, the number one reason pursuing work as the ultimate place of meaning is foolish, it's a dead-end street, is because it will let us down. But the second reason he builds on, in fact, he spends more time here in context, is that our work will soon be done. Our work will soon be done. Look at verses 18 through 21, because our life is transient on this earth. Let me read verses 18 through 21. I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows if that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, notice the language, knowledge and skill, and then must leave it all to another who has not even toiled for it. This too is meaningless. This is a massive misfortune. Notice how transparent in Ecclesiastes the teacher is. He's really transparent here. And I'm sure he worked long hours, right? Dealt with difficult people. Anybody can relate to that? I'm sure he sweated and toiled for years and years. And where is he now? As he looks back at his life, he feels deep despair. The language of the text raises the idea, what is the point of it? And Koaleth realizes what I would describe as the short shelf life of his work. And if that's not enough, he will say, when I die... Someone else is going to enjoy my work. And even more painful to him, you feel the pain here, is the realization that he has no idea what others will do with all that he has worked for. He has zero control over it. Death will open his hands, whether he wants to have his hands opened or not. The message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson, has such a good grasp of the Hebrew text. So let me just, I think he paraphrases this well. He says, what's the point of working your fingers to the bone? If you hand over what you work for to someone who's never lifted a finger for it. That's exactly what Kohaleth is saying. 
Recently, I was chatting with someone who has worked really hard in their life. And it's brought them significant material success. And knowing that much of what she has done will be passed on to her children, she shared with me at dinner about a recent conversation she was having with one of her adult children about her estate planning, which is a good thing, by the way. And uh, her son responded to his mom in a very respectful, loving way, but he said basically to her, you know, I will probably utilize these resources quite differently than you would. And he says, Mom, I hope you're all right with that. And as she shared this very transparent reality with me, I, I found myself thinking, I'm so glad her son was honest with her. Because this is the reality that the Ecclesiastes writer is reminding each of us. Our temporal lives are so short. The work and its achievements and wealth we attain, we will not take with us. And we have almost zero control of what happens to it afterwards. Now hear me carefully. Lasting legacies of our work, achievement, and wealth are mostly to us comforting illusions. This is what he's saying. The baton handoff of succession, whether it's a family generation, a business, a for-profit company, a non-profit organization, like a church, is inevitable. And our work and our achievements will soon be out of our hands. Whether our estate is large or small, doesn't matter. We leave it all behind. We enter into this world with nothing, and we leave it that way too. And this is what pursuing work as some ultimate meaning doesn't deliver. It's a dead-end street. So he gives three reasons. The first reason, again, why this is so foolish to make it ultimate in our life or pursue it at such a high level, he says, because our work will inevitably let us down. But secondly, our work will soon be done now as we die. Sooner than many of us imagine. And last, notice where he goes. Our work will bring us distress. Very intense language here. Verses 22 through 23. He says, What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days. Notice the language. Their work is grief and pain. And even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. What are you saying? That work within a secular framework that is laboring under the sun, shrinks into grief and pain. Now, let me unpack this just a little bit. Verse 22 particularly begins, if we translate it very literally, he begins with, for what? For what? And then he points out these two words that are translated grief and pain. And in the original language, this captures, in other usage, extreme sorrow. This is not just like a light tear or frustration. This is agony. This is ongoing suffering and pain. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. He says, so what do you get from a life of labor anyway? Pain and grief. From dawn to dusk. Never a decent night's rest. It's nothing but smoke. Wow. The distress we all feel from our work, now outside the garden, greets us in the night, doesn't it not? Doesn't it keep us awake? When our minds should be at peace and rest, there's turmoil. How many of us have lost 
nights of sleep. You don't have to raise your hand. I will, for me. Okay. Because of work-related matters and the stress of our work. It may be a real difficult boss you have or a very difficult employee or colleague you have to deal with. Or maybe there's an agonizing decision you have to make for your work. Or maybe you're facing a financial downturn in your company or an incredible rise above, which is a whole other set of problems. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, much of our work and workplaces have faced what I've never experienced in a free fall of uncertainty. Overnight, there's been massive changes globally and challenges on a national scale, but also a global scale. Talk about stress and distress. Many people I talk with across the vocational spectrum are exhausted, and they are tired, and they're trying to recover from these last two years. But isn't it also true we need to remember that without a pandemic, or war, companies that experience amazing success can easily go south like that. Right? I was reminded of this this week in the Wall Street Journal. Maybe you saw it. Netflix has been Wall Street's darling. But it's now becoming Wall Street's dud. And the front cover of the business section, get this, in the last three months, this incredible company, has lost 200,000 paid subscribers in three months. Can you imagine what it's like going to work at Netflix tomorrow morning? Imagine being in leadership where employees wondering if they'll have their job. See, many of our Monday work worlds are filled with stress and exhaustion. Hey, it's Mother's Day after all. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms. And on Mother's Day, we not only celebrate awesome moms which I had an awesome mom, but we are reminded of the incredibly hard work moms do every day in raising their kids. Being a mom is a 24-7 job, is it not? And there's lots of joy, of course, but man, there's lots of stress. There's distress. There's sleepless nights. Children need constant care. You know that. You're always cleaning up after them, right? Driving them to places, helping them with their homework. And yes, caring for them when they get sick, or later, when they have a breakup with a boyfriend or girlfriend, keeps you up all night. Now, let me also be transparent. I try to be the work of pastors. A marvelous calling, not more important than yours, but it's sometimes filled with distress and stress. I mean, I know you're a perfect congregation. But you may know that I have the joy of serving a national network called Made to Flourish that now has 4,000 pastors in it. And uh, so I'm in touch with pastors often. And I have to say that I have never seen the kind of exhaustion in pastor, pastors' lives in all my years. The Barna Research study is saying that unprecedented numbers of pastors across denominational tribes are leaving the pastorate. Pastors are now a part of the great cultural resignation, as cultural observers have been describing. So whatever work God has called you to, it is going to be difficult. And then if you add a global pandemic to it and all the other things, it moves our work-related stress off the charts. Now, I'm a country music fan. I've gone country the last 10 to 15 years. I love country. And I love country music because it captures the raw reality of Ecclesiastes. Life outside the garden. 
two of my favorites, you know, you're, oh, you always wince when I say favorite movie or favorite whatever, is Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett. They have a very popular song. It's one I listen to often. It's called Five O'Clock Somewhere. Do you know the song? I'm not going to sing it, I promise you. Let me give you a taste of the lyrics that could have been written by Koalath. The sun is hot, that old clock is moving slow, and so am I. The workday passes like molasses in wintertime, but it's July. I'm getting paid by the hour and older by the minute. My boss just pushed me over the limit. I'd like to call him something, but I think I'll just call it a day. Pour me something tall and strong, make it a hurricane before I go insane. It's only half past 12, but I don't care. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. Now, I'm not advocating skipping your work to go to a bar, okay? Just, just in case you're wondering. But I think Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett capture it, don't you? We can all relate to this, can't we? You may be going through a very difficult reality at work right now. In your paid or non-paid role. You may be dreading what awaits you tomorrow morning. When you arrive at the office or you open that email. Or you have to write that difficult email. Any work outside the garden will have distress. To just double down on work or make it our work, our life's highest priority to pursue ultimate meaning in it is complete foolishness. It's chasing after winds. It's only an enticing mirage of meaning that will betray us. Coalesce says our work will let us down. Our work will soon be done and our work will bring us distress. But that doesn't mean work doesn't matter. It does matter a great deal. When we see our daily work through the lens of a Godward life, we then gain a proper perspective of our work. And Coaleth will speak more about this in the rest of the book. But he gives us notice, I think, in the midst of this despairing picture, a little hopeful hint at the end of chapter 2 and verses 24 through 25. So let me just give you a little bit of his glimmer of hope. He says, a person can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? So friends, in a culture that advocates the idolatry of work, how do we avoid the dead end of making our work an idol or falling into the trap of workism or workaholism? How do we keep our work in proper perspective? Let me suggest, if you haven't already, we have a book called Work Matters. That gives a much more backdrop on this. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to do that. But let me just give you three hopeful reminders, okay? Three hopeful reminders to put in your heart and mind as you go into your Monday world. First, work matters, but it can matter too much in your life and life. Your work is important. It's part of what it means to be human, part of what it means to love your neighbor, but it is never to be ultimate. Your work is not the highest priority in life. Relationships with God and others are. Workaholism is one of those cultural idols, idols that I think is the most seductive and most hidden. The inner tug and outer tug of workaholism is very strong for many of us here. I know that's been a struggle in my own life. An inconvenient truth is that way too many workaholic pastors neglect their intimacy with God, ruin their physical and emotional well-being, and become distant and estranged to those closest to them. This is the inconvenient truth of the clergy world. And work burnout is becoming an increasingly mental health crisis. We all have blind spots, so who's speaking into your life about your work? 
spouse, coach, colleague, a pastor, a friend. Let's remember that the good news of the gospel transforms our view of work. The gospel tells us our identity and significance and meaning is not found in what we do, but in whose we are. Let me say that again. The gospel tells us our identity, our significance, our meaning is not found in what we do, but in whose we are. As image bearers of our triune God, we have great intrinsic value, period. As apprentices of Jesus, who by grace through faith have embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have been completely forgiven, we have been totally accepted, and we are unimaginably loved, period. We are his beloved, and nothing can change that. The second reminder is that work will not always be as it it is now. Do I hear an amen on that? Our work, paid and unpaid, is not what it ought to be. But it will be one day in the new heavens and new earth. I don't know what you imagine about heaven. But the Bible doesn't describe it as a doing-nothing time. The Old Testament Prophet Isaiah looked down the corridor of time in the new heavens and earth in Isaiah 65, and he described a time when we'll be building and creating. And he'll sell. He says, they will enjoy the work of their hands. No more toil. The work you are called to do is toilsome. But let me just say this. It's preparing you for the creative and loving work you will do one day if you are a follower of Jesus in the new heavens and earth. That's very hopeful. The last reminder for you to tuck in your heart is this. Work done now is not in vain. It's not in vain. Isn't it easy to look at the work we do and wonder if it really matters at all? Often. It feels like we're going one step forward, two steps back. And so I'm about to wonder if it's all rather pointless. As if our Monday worlds are simply chasing after wind, going up in smoke. But the Apostle Paul, in the great resurrection chapter that we unpacked on Easter morning, in 1 Corinthians 15, reminds us that the life of Jesus, his sinless life, his atoning death, his death-defeating resurrection, because of that, our Monday worlds of work done before the face of God for the glory of God is not in vain. That great resurrection chapter, the significance of the resurrection tomb, ends with these words about our work. And this is what Paul says in the glorious truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, get after it. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's creation work. That's not just pastoral kind of work, okay? Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. What a hopeful message the resurrection brings. Like the pursuit of pleasure... Our work, pursued apart from God, will prove in time, yes, it gives us an adrenaline hit for a while, but it'll prove in time to be another disillusioning mirage of meaning. Our work, your work does matter, but it can matter too much. Because Ecclesiastes, Coalef will remind us over and over again of this truth. For anything we pursue for meaning outside of God will eventually let us down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good design in creating us to contribute, creating us to work in your image. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to live fully into our work, 
not allowing it to become an idol, but to do our work for the glory of God before the face of God and for love of neighbor. Lord, establish the work of our hands. Amen.